This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good evening. My name is Catherine Gedek Soltis, and I have the privilege of directing the Center for Peace and Justice Education here at Villanova University. And I welcome you all, and thank you for being here tonight. Since 1990, the Center has annually recognized outstanding contributions to the understanding of the meaning and conditions for justice and peace in human communities. Our past recipients of the award include Sister Helen Prejean, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Philadelphia Mural Arts Program, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, Lema Bowie, and Wendell Berry. Tonight, we have the great honor of adding Network to this list as the recipient of the 2013 Adela Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award. The award was made possible by a generous gift from the late Adela Dwyer. Recognition and thanks go to Barbara Wall and the late Father Ray Jackson, who first proposed and secured this award. I'd also like to recognize and thank Father Peter Donahue, our president, who traveled and just got here um, from a trip. Uh, so we appreciate you being present tonight. I'd also like to thank the hardworking faculty and staff of the Center for Peace and Justice Education, Carol Anthony, Sharon Disher, Tim Horner, and Will Stell, as well as our visiting faculty, Gay Strickler and Ron Hill. Members of our Peace Award Committee are also to be thanked for helping to solicit nominations and identify tonight's recipient. They are Maria Toyota, Magan Keita, Sue Toten, Jonathan Doe, Paul Rozier, Ralph Giuliani, Barbara Quintiliano, Randy Weinstein, and co-chairs Will Stell and Tim Turner. As we were advertising for tonight, I did fear there might be some confusion about what type of social network we might be honoring. So to dispel any misconceptions, this is a social justice network, a Catholic social justice lobby to be exact, and it worked for decades without tweets, likes, and even email. In December 1971, in the midst of calls from the Vatican and the U.S. bishops to seek justice in the world, 47 Catholic sisters from across the country gathered for a weekend in Washington, D.C. to form a new ministry. They voted to form a national network of sisters to lobby for federal policies and legislation that promote economic and social justice. And to begin their work, they passed around a bag and collected $187. Four months later, they opened a two-person office in D.C. The agenda ranged from global hunger to nuclear weapons, to women's rights. The impact of network has only grown over the decades, and their influence has been significant. For example, firmly grounded in Catholic social teaching, network believes that healthcare is a fundamental social good and a human right. In 2010, during our national conversation about healthcare reform, network executive director, Sister Simone Campbell, wrote the famous nun's letter supporting the reform bill and got 59 leaders of Catholic sisters to sign on, including the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. This action was cited by many as critically important in passing the Affordable Care Act. Sister Simone was thanked by President Obama and invited to the ceremony celebrating the signing of the bill. Network continues to advocate for reforms that are consistent with flourishing for all, especially those who are most vulnerable and marginalized. For instance, right now on their website, Network invites, quote, all nuns and those who feel we are all nuns <laughs> to, to form teams of activists for Medicaid expansion in your state. They offer comprehensive information with an interactive map and tools for lobbying your governor. 
Network's impact is owed to hundreds of congregations of women religious, thousands of individual sisters, as well as parishes, small faith communities, religious congregations of brothers and priests, and thousands of individual activists. They lobby, organize, and educate for a nation and world rooted in justice and peace. The sisters at the helm of Network are courageous, creative, savvy, and prophetic. And they travel. In the summer of 2012, Network organized the famous Nuns on the Bus Tour, during which Catholic sisters traveled through nine states to protest proposed cuts to federal safety net spending included in the Ryan budget. This past summer, Sister Simone led a new cross-country Nuns on the Bus trip focused on comprehensive immigration reform. Nuns on the Bus has received an avalanche of attention across the nation from religious communities, elected officials, and the media. If you haven't seen them on the bus, you may have seen or heard them on CNN, NPR, Bill Moyers, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Time Magazine, and the list goes on. A description from the Des Moines Register, where the nuns on the bus stopped in Iowa, gives an apt description of the energy these sisters are channeling on behalf of those who so often are forgotten. The journalist writes, quote, from up the street, it looked like a rock band had stopped in town. <laughs> Except rock stars probably wouldn't be up that early. <laughs> On the sidewalk outside the Fort Des Moines Hotel Monday morning, a swarm of people, including reporters with boom mics, surrounded a large, colorfully decorated bus brandishing the name Nuns on the Bus. These were real Catholic nuns, a rotating 14 or so of them on a bus tour of nine states, calling attention, me, calling attention to the harshness of the U.S. House of Representatives budget bill. The article goes on to discuss the nuns' concern about how cuts would affect food stamps, Head Start, and special education services. And then the journalist closes with succinct wisdom. Quote, these nuns who live in the trenches alongside the poor and suffering can claim a credibility few others among us could they should be listened to. Well, tonight, we have the great, great honor of listening to S Sister Simone Campbell, Network's Executive Director since 2004. She is a religious leader, attorney, and poet with extensive experience in public policy and advocacy. She lobbies in Washington and is a noted national speaker and educator on peace building, immigration reform, healthcare, and economic justice. Prior to Network, Sister Simone served in other leadership capacities. She was executive director of Jericho, the Catholic interfaith public policy organization that protects the interests of those living in poverty. She also served as the general director of her religious community, the Sisters of Social Service. She was the leader of her sisters in the United States, Mexico, Taiwan, the Philippines, and negotiated with the governments and religious leaders in each of those countries. She was also part of the Catholic Relief Services delegation to Lebanon and Syria to study the Iraqi refugee situation there. Sister Simone has often been featured in the national and international media, including recent appearances on 60 Minutes, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and The Colbert Report. And she has schooled Stephen Colbert. <laughs> she speaks tonight under the title, The Pentecost of Nonviolence, The Politics of Struggle and Hope. We consider it a profound honor to welcome Sister Simone to Villanova today and to be able to present Network with a 2013 Adela Dwyer St. Thomas of Villanova Peace Award.
thank you so much. I, it, it's such um, such a treasure, such an honor uh, to receive this award. And I, I was saying beforehand that. You know, I've been doing this work at Network for nine years, but I'm so keenly aware of all of the sisters that have gone before us. And while we are still a few sisters at Network, um, we are so much more than that. And that's the brilliance of Network. Network is just that. It's a web of relationships where all are welcome. All are welcome, which becomes important for the conversation tonight. There's one piece of the story about our founding, which I think we need to add, which goes back to our 40th anniversary that we celebrated April 14th, 2012. That day is emblazoned in my mind because we had our glorious celebration in DC and at Trinity University. And the big question that came at that celebration was, how do we get our mission out there? How do we let people know what we are doing? We've been doing this for 40 years, and it felt like we were getting no traction to get our message heard. Well, you have to be very careful what you pray for. <laughs> because four days later, the Vatican answered our prayer. And they, in the, the censure of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, they named our little organization, who at the time had nine full-time staff members, as being a bad influence and someone to not be listened to. It was that moment of gift and grace that leads me to talk tonight about a Pentecost of nonviolence. Because I think the thing for us at Network was to figure in this moment of notoriety, how do we use that moment for mission? And our mission had been for 40 years to lift up the needs of people in poverty and to struggle to make our nation better. And in this moment where the press wanted to talk to me, uh, it, it was an amazing experience because um, at the time, the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, their leadership was still in Rome, and they had to be really careful what they said in the press because uh, the LCWR is created by Rome. But network, we didn't have any direct connection to Rome. So we were free to be able to make comment. But it got boring very quickly, and Catholic sisters are never about talking about our life. Yes, we take three vows. Yes, we live in community. Yes, we work with people that are poor. Yes. And then it was like, wait a minute. We've got to be able to use this moment in a better way. And so what came to me in prayer was this idea of, remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well? Some of you may remember it. The, the, the story's this. Jesus left Israel. He's off in a foreign land, sort of like he went to Mexico, if he lived in Southern, I, I'm from Southern California, so I always think of that as, as pretty close. You know, just went over the border to Tijuana. It was the equivalent, and Jesus goes to the equivalent of Tijuana, and it's hot, it's the middle of the afternoon, and he needs something to drink, and the only person around is a woman, and you know, men did not talk to women, and Jews did not talk to Samaritans. So Jesus speaks to this woman who was a Samaritan and not only speaks to her, but asks her for help. Help, help, 
I'm thirsty. Could you give me something to drink? What struck me when I, when I reflected on that scripture was that I needed to ask others in DC for help. Our Catholics, all of the Catholics I had asked for help were just hopeless. They were so angry and so upset and so distressed and just outraged and they just sputter. And that wasn't terribly helpful at the time. So what came to me was to ask for help in this uh, meeting that we call Big Table. They're actually meeting tonight in D.C. And if I'm in D.C., I usually go and we talk policy. And at the end of the meeting, I asked for help. And it was all the secular organizations in town. And everyone gave me their card and was excited to help. And the result was, on May 14th, at Network, we had a meeting, and um, the result at the end of an hour and a half meeting, and nobody knows who first said road trip, but that we were going on the road, we were going in a wrapped bus, we were going to lift up the needs of people who live in poverty and the horror that the Ryan budget would do for them, and to lift up the works of our Catholic sisters. We have some sisters here who helped make that happen. But it was an amazing experience. And what I came to realize is, is that this idea of nonviolence is at the heart of what we do. It is a way of radical acceptance. Two years ago on retreat, oh, I should confess, I'm on retreat right now. So uh, I snuck away. I snuck away from retreat, but I'm considering this my lab. You know how you know how you have class, so that retreat's the class. I'm out doing some lab work, and then I'll take my experience back to retreat. So don't you think that works at a university? Jesus understands. Um, but two years ago on retreat, I got pushed by uh, Pat Hawk, who's a redemptorist priest, who was our retreat director, to radical acceptance. Radical acceptance. Well, that was a really nice idea until he pointed out it was to accept even those who are on my mistake of God list. <laughs> you know, there are just some people. It was God on an off day, a test model that didn't work out so well. And Pat pushed me to realize that if I'm at odds with the God in them, I'm at odds with the God in me. Oh, how annoying is that? (laughs) And being pushed to radically accept these people I would rather fight with. So I got to a holy place for about a brief moment, and even Mitch McConnell could be loved. <laughs> I don't know. Anybody without lips, I just don't know. Anyway. But the challenge to open my heart large enough to welcome them all in And then I got to this holy place. So I go and talk to Pat and do interview, and I say, oh, it's a holy place. I have three more days of retreat. I think I'm going to have this three days of being holy. It's wonderful. It'll last at least as long as retreat. And he said, well, now add in fighting. Fighting? I just got to the place of accepting. What does this mean, fighting? 
And it took three days, but where I came to realize is that what we often mistake in our quest for justice is that we fight against as opposed to fighting for. When we fight for, then all are included in the source of our care and our love. When we see that all are involved in the place of our heart, then we can welcome everyone in. It's fighting for that makes the difference, not fighting against. And so that I can radically accept everyone and find a way to fight for. Let me give you an example. On our first bus trip, we were in Milwaukee at the um, St. Benedict the Moor dining room. And every night in Milwaukee, the um, different churches come and give a, a, prepare a free meal for anyone who shows up. So the nuns on the bus showed up, and we got our dinner. It was great. Um, and I was sat next to Billy and his wife and two kids. And Billy told me that he's working, his wife's working, they're making minimum wage. They put their salaries together in order to get a roof over their kids' heads. They had been homeless at one point, but they knew that wasn't good for their kids. So they spend all their money on rent so their kids can stay in one school. And their 14-year-old, oh my glory, he was one of those 14-year-old boys, you know, kind of gangly, and you know he'd just been through a gross spurt. He's like really uncomfortable and he was in his body. You could just kind of see he wasn't used to having all these extra appendages. And he was he was looking at his dad's roll that was still on his dad's plate. And he was just staring at it. And okay, here's me, here's his son. Here's me, Billy, the son. So I see his son looking at the plate. Billy doesn't see it. Billy's talking to me. And then he just says to us, all right, you can have it. I'm sure just the, the, the eyes drilling through the back of his head just touched his father's heart. And, and so the 14-year-old pounces on the roll and he's eating it. And Billy describes to me that they come every night to the dining room because they need some good, nutritious food for his kids. This isn't what he would want, but it's what he's got. He uses food stamps during the day to feed his family because of rent being so bad and he's making minimum wage. Minimum wage, $7.25 an hour, is only $15,000 a year. So he and his wife together had less than $30,000 to raise a family of four. It's impossible. It's impossible. So I realized, oh my glory, this is not... I mean, and these are the people Paul Ryan wants to kick off of food stamps. This is the people that the Farm Bill wants to eliminate from food stamps. I mean, we've got to stand up and say, no, please, more than please. We have to insist, fight for these people. But what I realized was that while Paul Ryan wants to style it as a handout to Billy and his wife, well, oh, you could say that. But you could also say it's a handout to the employer because the employer gets a fed worker and can pay low wages. And then I realized, uh-oh, it's a handout to the consumer too because the consumer gets lower prices so that the employer pays lower wages so that Billy and his wife strive so hard to raise their family. 
I don't know what's happened in our nation. Work used to pay, but since the late 1970s, wages have basically been flat. But what it made me realize, what Billy made me realize, is that we are in this together. This is about the 100%. It's not about them. It's about us. We are in this together. And if we can radically accept all of us and to see the integration of all of us, then something new can emerge. And the image that came to me on retreat was uh, two years ago that when you put radical acceptance and fighting for together, it's like fire. It's fire. Because think of it, it's putting together the fuel and the heat, the purifying, the uh, energy, the spark, the love, the care. That fire is a bigger story. Well, then what happened for me spiritually after I got into this fire of the moment, when the Vatican censure came, very quickly after I was reflecting on the Samaritan woman at the well, all of a sudden I realized, oops, I realized I don't have a piece of meat. I realized that the, this fire really is quite like the burning bush. Remember the story of the burning bush of Moses and the burning bush? He's out in the desert, barren land. Now, I do think our nation has been a bit barren. And what, this, what happens is Moses see this, sees this bush on fire, but it's not being burned up. And uh, he approaches it, and he's kind of curious. And the voice says, come no nearer. Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. Whoa, all right. And then what God says is, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying for help on account of their taskmasters. Yes, I am well aware of their suffering. And I am coming to rescue them. What I came to realize on the first bus trip is that I think we are all called to be a burning bush in this barren time that we're in. In a time in our nation where it's more about polarization and fighting, it's more about alienation and isolation, we are called. We are called to let God flame up in our lives so that those who are oppressed by taskmasters can know something different. And then you change, you come to the New Testament. What I realized was in the New Testament, remember the story of Pentecost? And this is why it's so important. It's the same fire of God, but this time it's not in place in the desert. It's in the people. It's in every single one of us. We each are called to let the fire of radical acceptance and fighting flame up in us so that the new can emerge. We can't do things in the old way. We cannot continue just this partisan politics. We cannot continue name-calling. I want to call them all names myself, so that's <laughs> not the way forward. The way forward is to say we're in this together. It's about how do we stand together. So let me, 
let me give you a few examples of how we stand together from our immigration bus trip. Um, we were in San Antonio. Imagine, it was a good thing to do on a, get, a night that's getting cold. Imagine San Antonio in June, and somebody had the bright idea to have a 2 p.m. press conference outside. <laughs> when the temperature was about 108 or possibly more, and we had, uh, they had organized tents to cover the 300-some folks that showed up. <laughs> But those who were speaking didn't have any covering. So we're standing in the sun. So somebody decides to go get the chairs, the metal chairs, that are leaning against the building to go bring them to us to sit down. I don't believe anybody got pictures of the actual sitting down, but I will never forget that moment. <laughs> Speaking of fire, I believe that was the fire of Pentecost right there. But what happened was Congressman Pete Gallego, who's from that area, he's a really tall guy, really nice guy, a new member of Congress. He's been struggling to figure out his place there. He, he comes up and he has his papers and he comes up and he's going to give his talk. And he had just come in from the airport. And his, his wife and his eight-year-old son had come to the event to meet him at the event. And so the eight-year-old Nicholas sees his dad and is totally oblivious that his dad's about to give a talk. So Pete puts his, his you know, papers down. He's preparing that you know, he's about to speak. And you hear over on the side, and Nicholas runs up and throws his arms around his dad. And so it's like his arms are right around his waist. And everybody goes, oh, it was so sweet. And then Pete stops and he says, I can't give you my talk now. And he rubs his son's head. I have to tell you when my attitude towards immigration changed. My attitude towards immigration changed the moment, the first moment I held this little boy in the delivery room. And I knew, as a dad, I would do anything to protect this kid. I would give my life for this little kid. And then I realized I'm like every other parent in the world. Isn't that true? Don't we all know that? Well, a couple of days later, we were in um, Arizona at the Pascoyaki Reservation, the indigenous tribe. and and heard about the immigration policy's impact on the Native Americans. I, I was stunned. I, I knew there was an impact, but I had no idea how challenging it is. And Chairman Pete Uricipio told us that they have 30,000 Pascoyaki on the Mexican side of the border, and they have 60,000 on the US side of the border. And every time they want to have a, a meeting, they have to deal with visas for both sides. They told us about how the fence had been built right up to their reservation land, which the effect of that has been to channel criminal activity through the land. So that for the first time, people on the, on the reservation are having to be afraid. They never had to be afraid before, because criminals are coming in and you know doing carjackings and kidnappings and all kinds of nefarious activity. But then afterwards, he told me that he himself had found the body of a woman curled under a big bush in the desert. And she apparently had been trying to cross. And when they rolled her body over, she was holding her small, dead child. And I thought, <coughs> she's got, she had the same desire as Pete. 
for his son. We're in this together. We cannot separate ourselves from any of this. This is not just policy. This is life. This is the pursuit of happiness. In um, Charlotte, North Carolina, we did a business roundtable, and the guy from the North, North Carolina Chamber of Commerce, I don't want to insult anybody from North Carolina. I do my very bad North Carolina imitation. But he had this lovely Southern accent. And he told me that, he told the whole group, that the United States is the only one that advertises the American dream. You never hear about a Russian dream or the French dream or even an Argentinian dream. You only hear about the American dream. And his point was, shouldn't we have truth in advertising? If we're advertising a dream, shouldn't there be a way for people to come, participate? And right now we have a broken system where there is no basic way. Oh, it's about the 100%. It's about all of us together. It is about being at the center of the struggle and knowing that radical acceptance means that we accept those who oppose any change, but those who hunger for it. That we say that it's not the end of the story if somebody opposes us, but we fight for what is our best values that we fight for who we are as a nation, that we fight for we the people. I do it from faith. And from faith, I'm more than willing to talk about it at any moment. And I, I did bring Pope Francis's new exhortation. Read it, read it, it's good news. It's fabulous news, it's fabulous news. And it's so amazing that he acknowledges the struggle and the culture and laments the globalization of indifference and that we need to stand up and speak with and for those who are struggling in poverty and that we cannot let our economy rule us. And one of the best things he says here is that how can it be that it is not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news if the stock market goes down two points. That is the faith side of this. It's all about relationship and all being included. It's the 100%. But I, I mean, I'm grateful to be at Villanova where it's okay to talk Catholic. But I, I'm in a lot of other places where talking Catholic, people expect it, but it's not the end of the story. Because we're in a pluralistic society, so how do we do this? In a pluralistic society where we meet is in the Constitution. And that's the key. It's we, the people of the United States. It doesn't say we who got here first, we the politicians, we the rich ones, we the ones who write the rules. No, it's all of us people. We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. It's not gonna be perfect. Lord, that's a really good thing because we've got a long way to go before it's perfect. But to form a more perfect union to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility. Pope Francis says in this glorious document, one of the reasons we've got to fix our economy and end this huge income gap is because it's going to create a greater crisis and unrest and it's the seeds of violence. We've got to create a more perfect union and establish justice. So this I think is at the heart of the peace. We the people of the United States having a heart for all of us 
even the ones I want to leave out, we've got to stretch to include. And then, what do we do? We're called to a new politics. The new politics, I have a hunch, is this. And you're my first, you're, I'm on retreat, so this is a new retreat idea. So we're testing this out. We'll see how it goes. And questions and answers, we can talk about it. But th this is an older part. But the new, OK, I'll tell you when I get to the new part. The older part is that in the last half of the 20th century, we were all about civil rights, which was key, essential, really important. But what happened was people became afraid that there weren't enough rights to go around, and so everybody pulled into themselves to protect my rights. If we're going to radically accept, we have to also then engage in civil obligations. I need to make sure that everybody has the room to exercise their rights. We have an obligation to contribute. I have an obligation to be informed. We all have an obligation to be a part of this more perfect union. I have a hunch if we focus also on the obligations, we can bring people in together. Because it's only together can we do this. But here's the new part. I think we need to practice a politics of both and. Too often, we're either or. I realize this. I, I did this with Paul Ryan. I mean, it's so amazing that I can say I did this with Paul Ryan. But you know, his, his approach is. Um, you know, individual responsibility. Well, I want to say there's a responsibility for government to ensure that everyone has a fair chance, that, that the Jimmys of the world has a chance, that the, this woman crossing the desert, that she has a chance. We have to make sure government has a role. Well, here's my new idea. We have to say, you're right, we need individual responsibility, and we need governmental role. It's both. It's not either or. And if we do both and, then everyone is welcome. Everyone has a piece of the truth. Everybody can be a part of this. And isn't that the glory of Pentecost? The marvel of Pentecost was that everyone heard in their own language. Everyone could be a part of the love of God that brings us together. And in the end, having everybody have a place at the table, isn't that peace? That is the new peace. And that is a politics that won't drive us apart. It will urge us forward. And then we can radically accept and still fight for, and it'll make all the difference. Thank you.